Our second scripture reading is from the first book of Kings, chapter 17, beginning at the eighth verse. Listen now for what the Spirit is saying to you. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Go now to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there. For I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So Elijah set out and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the town, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel so that I may drink. As she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, do not be afraid. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of meal will not be emptied, and the jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. She went and did as Elijah said, so that she, as well as he, and her household ate for many days. The jar of meal was not emptied, neither did the jug of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That's one of the most famous openings of a book ever written, A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, London and Paris at the time of the French Revolution, where it was the best of times, Dickens tells us, and it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. The best time ever. The worst time ever. Although in that moment, no one knew it. Dickens wrote his tale of two cities 100 years after those events. Historical fiction, which means it has truth, but it isn't factual. It's one writer's telling of what life was like back then, and that if we'd been alive, this story might have been ours, depending on which side of the city or the river or the English Channel we lived.
there is always so much life, so many stories happening alongside one another in any given place, and so many ways to tell them. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Good writers tell the truth about that. And so do good prophets. And of all the Hebrew prophets, Elijah is remembered as the beloved one you could count on to say, right now, y'all, it is not the best of times. It is the worst of times. But it could be different. So I'm going to tell you a tale of new possibilities. It's why there's always a place set for Elijah at every Passover Seder, an empty chair and a glass full of wine in case today is the day he decides to show up and speak to us about our time. Elijah is the prophet of justice, the one Jesus most resembles. He performs miracles and raises the dead, calls out kings and calls down fire, tells the truth, makes good trouble, and doesn't even die like a normal person, but gets taken up into heaven in a whirlwind and a chariot. The man is bigger than life. He's got superpowers. You read about his showdown with 450 prophets of Baal, which he accomplished single-handedly, by the way, just him and his sword, and you think, wow, it is the Bible meets the Avengers, best folk hero ever. But all of that is ahead of him at the time our passage today takes place. When Elijah meets the widow of Zarephath at the city gate, he has only just started down the path God has set for him. The only thing he's done so far is to announce to the terrible King Ahab that a drought and famine are coming to Israel because the people are worshiping idols and the king is so corrupt and depraved he doesn't care. As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, Elijah declares, there shall be neither dew nor rain for these years except by my word. In other words, it is about to be the worst of times for the people of Israel. And King Ahab, pay attention. There is a new prophet in town. The king is not so out of it that he can't perceive the obvious, namely that Elijah is going to be a royal pain in his backside, and he's not happy about it that this man of God is about to ruin his good time. So the word of God comes to Elijah, warning him that he'd better hide. The king of Israel is not taking it well that he has a fierce new prophet on his case, and he is out for blood, Elijah's blood. Elijah is told to flee the country and hide first at a riverbed east of the Jordan, and then in the town of Zarephath, across the border, in Phoenicia. It's Elijah, Elijah's first test of faith that God will provide for him while he is on the run, even if the survival plan is really weird, which 
it is. You would think, for instance, that the easiest plan to make under these circumstances would be for God to provide for Elijah by pulling out the old manna in the wilderness act. Send the heavenly bread fresh every morning, tell Elijah he can gather enough for the day and no more. That's how the Hebrew children learned reliance. That's how God provided for them in the wilderness after their escape from Egypt. It took them 40 years to learn the lesson if they ever did, but manna in the wilderness was a well-established miracle of the Almighty, one of Israel's favorites. If God's survival plan for Elijah was going to entail a lot of wilderness time, it would make sense to recycle one of these old mighty acts of God, rain down the manna. But that is not what the Lord has in mind. Or conversely, you might think in this case that another feasible survival plan would be for God to let Elijah use his superpowers to get his own food, turn stones into bread, for instance, or strike a rock with his staff to get water like Moses did. At the very least, Elijah could call down fire from on high so he could cook over it, learn to make wilderness stew or a mean pot of chili, as men do. That would be efficient and egalitarian. And since summoning fire is going to be this prophet's signature move starting in the very next chapter, Elijah could use this wilderness time to practice burning stuff up. But that's not what the Lord has in mind either. God's survival plan for Elijah is more personal. It will definitely have some special effects. Ravens bringing food, a jar of meal that miraculously replenishes itself. But the tone, the tone of it is personal. God's survival plan for Elijah involves breaking down a few barriers, challenging some old patterns, interrupting Elijah's way of being in the world so the prophet learns to open his mind and rethink his own presuppositions, his biases, his prejudices. And yes, he has them. He's a product of his time and context like we all are. Before Elijah can live into his destiny and do what God has sent him to do, he has to unlearn a few things about foreigners and women and the lines we draw to separate us and them, clean and unclean, strong and weak. Elijah is going to have to wrestle with some serious questions like this one. Does a prophet's strength really come from fire and brimstone and superhero acts of power? Or does it come from the quiet withholding of power so that someone else who needs it can flourish? Or this question. Is flying solo really the only way for a prophet to get the work done? Or does the word of God require 
mutual discernment, putting our piece of revelation next to someone else's piece and listening together for what they might mean? Or this question, which is a pretty gritty one, if God decides that a prophet needs to get over his squeamishness about scavenger birds by giving the job of food delivery to ravens, unkosher creatures in Elijah's day, will the prophet moan and complain about his wilderness grubhub options? Or can a man of God bite his tongue and deal with a little dirt on his pancakes, knowing that actually God loves ravens? They are beautiful creatures. And in the immortal words of Peter in the book of Acts, what God has made clean, Elijah must not call profane. As I said, God's survival plan for Elijah in this chapter is personal, huge questions that he needs to address to understand his own story and what is happening in Israel all around him that he has been sent and called to speak into. Why is it the worst of times in Israel? Because the powerful in Elijah's day worship idols of their own making and the powerless pay dearly for it. The poor and vulnerable, they are the ones who suffer. The book of Kings in the Bible, we divide it into two books, first and second Kings, but it's really meant to be read as one. The book of Kings is mostly about what goes on in throne rooms. But now and then, there is a story about ordinary people as if to remind us, to remind prophets, that addressing human suffering is the real reason to call out injustice. Elijah needs to confront King Ahab because the king's actions have consequences for the poor in, this, in Israel and in other nations. It's like what's happening in our world today with climate change, poor nations looking to rich ones and begging them to take action. God's survival plan for Elijah is designed to sensitize him to the needs of real people. Otherwise, he runs the risk of turning into a religious fundamentalist obsessed with purity laws. There are bigger things Justice comes through struggle, a demand to change and be changed, not so we can call ourselves pure. So the most vulnerable among us can live and thrive. Well, in Elijah's day, the most vulnerable among us were widows and orphans for whom the Bible always makes special provision. And of course, it is a widow Elijah is about to meet next. They run into one another at the city gate in Zarephath. She is not a worshiper of the God of Israel. In fact, her people are among Israel's worst enemies. Yet God has told Elijah 
that a widow in the foreign territory of Zarephath is his next source of food and shelter while Elijah's own king in Israel is trying to hunt him down and kill him, which is irony. Elijah was not raised to expect help from such a woman. Elijah was not raised to expect much from foreigners, period. And this one doesn't look very up to the task, gathering sticks so she can stoke one last fire to cook a handful of flour into a pathetically small little flatbread. It's all she and her son have left, this handful of flour, and it's going to be their last supper or excuse for a supper anyway. They won't get more than a mouthful apiece. And here's Elijah asking her for water to drink and a loaf of bread to eat, as if there weren't a drought and a famine in the land, as if she had all the flour in the world to bake him baskets full of loaves, as if this were not the worst of times and she and her son about to die. I don't have anything to give you, the widow tells Elijah. I'm just out here picking up sticks. I know your God sent you, but I can't be the person you were intended to meet. Look at me. How can your God possibly think that I could be safe haven for you. Elijah could have retreated at that moment. He could have gone back to the Lord and asked for more direction. Maybe he'd gotten the town wrong, or maybe God had given him the wrong address, or maybe this widow wasn't the widow he was supposed to meet, or maybe she was. And maybe they were supposed to muddle through this together. Maybe Elijah's survival plan was bound up in another person's survival. A poor woman from another religion and country who had nothing but a handful of flour. Okay, Elijah tells her, here's what we'll do. First, don't be afraid. Go home and do what you've said, but first make me a little loaf and then make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, your jar of flour will not be emptied and your jug of oil will not fail until the day God sends rain on the earth to end the drought. You will be provided for. And as odd as it seems to both of us, you will be safe haven for me, and I for you. And she was, and so was he. So now, dear saints of Country Club Christian Church, I'm wondering about you. 100 years of the best of times and the worst of times of wisdom and maybe foolishness too, tucked in there in a few places, of believing everything and not believing anything 
seasons of light and darkness, hope and despair, I am guessing that in 100 years, you have lived them all. I'm guessing you've met the widow of Zarephath, or been the widow of Zarephath, as all of us will be in one way or another eventually. And maybe over this span of years, you remember being fed by ravens, which I bet was a good story. And maybe you've met Elijah, some prophet who has called you out or called you back, spoken to you at the city gate while you were picking up sticks, some prophet whose well-being and welfare turned out to be bound to yours. 100 years is a long blessing of time. It's also a good opportunity to write some historical fiction, or if you're really brave, a tale of two centuries, a tale of new possibilities for you and this world God loves. I wonder what that tale might be. I wonder what piece of it, of that revelation, you've been given that you could hold up next to someone else's piece and discern together where the truth might be. And I wonder what might happen in your church and in mine if we instituted a new practice of setting a place for Elijah at every church supper, pouring a cup of wine just for him, just in case today is the day he decides to show up in Kansas City or Atlanta where I live and speak to us about our time. Or do you think we'll meet him at the city gate, picking up sticks? This might be the year to write a story. This might be the year to live it. And may the God of ravens and widows and Elijah the prophet bless you as you do.